from the kids to Aunt Sue. Keep your whole family connected on all their devices with crowd-pleasing gig-speed internet from Xfinity. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Learn more about gig-speed internet or other popular plans. With Xfinity, you'll enjoy faster downloads and a better streaming experience. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. It's time for Nicole Sandler's What's News from NicoleSandler.com and the Progressive Voices Network. It was another night of chaos in Hong Kong. Thousands of anti-government protesters blockaded the main terminal at Hong Kong's airport for a second straight night, temporarily stopping flights. Here's more from CNN. The new violence coming after Hong Kong's airport was shut down by protests for a second straight day. The crowd turning on suspected Chinese spies and ramping up anger against what protesters call police brutality. Chinese authorities have blasted the protests as signs of terrorism. Over the past week, state media has shown videos of Chinese military drills on the mainland, less than 20 miles away. Protesters tell us they're undeterred. Does that scare you? No, not at all. No, if we burn, they burn at us. President Trump responding tonight. I hope it worked out for... Liberty, I hope it works out for everybody, including China. I hope it works out peacefully. I hope nobody gets hurt. I hope nobody gets killed. Oops, he did it again. Trump made a ridiculous threat, this time about new tariffs on Chinese goods that would hurt the American consumer particularly hard, and then he backed down off of it. This time he announced that he'd delay the plan until December 15th, so prices on toys, cell phones, and video game consoles won't be affected during the Christmas shopping season. But I thought China was paying for the tariffs. Hmm. NBC's Stephanie Rohl has more. The president outed himself today. He very clearly says China paying us billions and billions. Well, that certainly doesn't make sense if today he's now postponing tariffs and citing the Christmas shopping season. That being the case, he's tacitly admitting it's the American consumer who pays for this. So the president is pushing these tariffs. Why? Because being Mr. Market is more important to him than being the tariff man. And we've already seen the equity markets pretty volatile. You mentioned those banks earlier. The CEO of Goldman Sachs two days ago said it's the trade wars that could push us into recession. The New York Times is reporting that aides to several key senators in both parties have been meeting with senior White House officials about gun control legislation. The senators involved, Pat Toomey, Republican of Pennsylvania, Joe Manchin, uh, sort of Democrat of West Virginia, and Chris Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut. Their staffers have been meeting with Joe Grogan's Domestic Policy Council and White House Legislative Affairs Director Eric Uland. Stay tuned. We're learning more about what happened the night Jeffrey Epstein died. The two staffers at Manhattan's Metropolitan Correctional Center tasked with watching the accused sex trafficker on the day of his death falsely recorded that they had checked on him every 30 minutes. This according to a report in the New York Times. A source cited by the Associated Press said surveillance footage showed the guards had failed to make some of the checks recorded in the logs. This comes after the two guards were placed on administrative leave pending investigations by the FBI and the Justice Department's Inspector General. The MCC's warden was also temporarily reassigned. We're also learning more about one of the workers who was supposed to be guarding Epstein at the time. Yesterday, we reported the employee was not 
a full-time corrections officer. Now, a person familiar with the investigation tells NBC News that employee had been a corrections guard for seven years. He then accepted a different job with better hours, but routinely took an overnight shift as a corrections officer to get overtime pay. The source would not say whether the employee was one of the two placed on administrative leave. Meanwhile, the New York Times is reporting the two staff members guarding Epstein's jail unit fell asleep and failed to check on him for about three hours, then falsified records to cover up that mistake. According to several law enforcement and prison officials with knowledge of the matter, two law enforcement officials telling NBC News investigators are looking at whether either or both of the employees on duty who were responsible for checking on Epstein were sleeping. They say no conclusion has yet been reached. Epstein, who was arrested for the alleged sex trafficking of dozens of minors, is thought to have died by apparent suicide in his cell. And in campaign news, former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper is said to be in discussions about ending his presidential bid, yes, and entering the race for his state's Republican-held Senate seat, potentially giving Democrats a strong candidate in a race they really must win in order to have hopes of retaking the Senate in 2021. Oh, and Tom Steyer, The billionaire entrepreneur and climate change activist, he revealed on Tuesday that he has inexplicably reached the requisite 130,000 individual donors needed to be included in the next round of debates. Democrats have until August 28th to qualify for the debates happening September 12th and 13th in Houston. Steyer, who has been a vocal proponent of impeaching the president, is also on the cusp of qualifying with polling. He has hit 2% in three separate polls, needing just one more to qualify. Nine candidates have already reached the donor and polling thresholds and will partake in the debate with uh, Tom Steyer and two others. Former HUD Secretary Julian Castro and Representative Tulsi Gabbard reaching the donor prerequisite. Stay tuned. I got good and that's just a bit of what's news for now. I'm Nicole Sandler. If you appreciate these reports in the Nicole Sandler Show, I hope you'll consider making a contribution. My work is 100% listener supported and I can't do it without your help. For more information, visit NicoleSandler.com. Click on Donate. Coming to you live from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress Takeover. Check us out at GenProgress.org or on Twitter at GenProgress. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. And I'm Brent Cohen. Uh, Today we have a really interesting show for you all. Um, We have some great folks both in studio and on the phone, um, and it's coming off the heels of uh, this huge United Nations climate report. Uh, The report was big news all last week, over the weekend. Um, It's it's all I think uh, a lot of people I know who are invested in the climate space could talk about, um, and for good reason. So last week, the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a report on climate change and land. The report is based on the idea that land is an extremely critical yet finite resource. And uh, the scary thing is there's not a lot of unused land left. 
As a result of the shortage of unused land and the looming pressure of climate change, the report concludes that we're going to have to get a lot more strategic uh, about sustainably managing land um, and land use in a way that maintains food resources while also avoiding further warming of land temperatures. So we're really going to have to think carefully about the way we use land in the future to feed ourselves, create clothing, keep ourselves warm. Um, so we have a, a, a great in-studio guest here. I'd like to welcome um, Guillermo Ortiz. He is a re- research assistant at the Center for American Progress, and he's on the Energy and Environment team. Welcome, Guillermo. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And we've also got on the phone Corrine Taylor. She's the Director of Federal Legislative Affairs at We Act for Environmental Justice. Corrine, thanks for joining us. Corrine, do we have you? Yes, thank you so much. So glad to join you guys today. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you for being on the line with us. Um, so I'd like to go ahead and just launch right in here. Um, we we'd like to talk a little bit. Kareen, can we start a little a little bit talking about the work that you do um, and the mission of your organization, so we can really make sure that we're uh, talking about this climate report in a way that uh, discusses the people that you that you advocate for. Definitely. So um, I am really proud to work for We Act for Environmental Justice. It's a northern Manhattan membership-based organization. We have about 800 members in northern Manhattan. So that's Harlem, Washington Heights, the Inwood community. And our mission is to build a healthy community um, by ensuring that people of color and low-income residents participate meaningfully in the creation of sound and fair environmental health and protection policies. Um, We Act has been around for about 31 years doing work in a a number of areas looking at ensuring that um, our communities are not overburdened by uh, pollution, whether it be through the transit system where a number of buses would come into our communities because the majority of the bus depots in New York City were located in Harlem, addressing um, things like um, making sure that our, our residents have clean and healthy homes, Um, Of course, um, responding to um, things like Hurricane Sandy and developing a North Manhattan Climate Action Plan to to ensure that communities can speak for themselves in terms of how we should respond to not only natural disasters, but what we know um, are just the exacerbated conditions that exist for communities of color as it relates to climate change. Yeah, and I think that's such important work because um, it's 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 really putting a face um, to this about the people who uh, so often are um, quickly and most directly impacted when something changes. Um, so we're really glad to have you on, and we're really glad that the that your organization has been doing this work for so long. Um, so, Corrine, uh, your background, as you said, is in ensuring that communities of color have a voice in climate change discussions and solutions. Um, and with that, your organization signed on to the Equitable and Just National climate platform recently uh, developed by advocates at the Climate Forum. So can you share a little bit more about the background of that platform um, and and why you signed on? Oh, definitely. Over the course of the year, um, a number of environmental justice leaders came together to figure out how we can collectively move to not only address climate change, but the the long history of um, systemic issues that have existed in our communities due to racial and economic um, um, conditions that have, you know, um, unfortunately been the the disproportionately disproportionately impacting um, our communities. And we know for sure that all people in all communities have the right to breathe clean air, live free of dangerous levels of toxic pollutions, et cetera. 
but unfortunately, um, national environmental policy hasn't always reflected in a equitable and just um, framework. And so over the course of this year, uh, folks like my boss, uh, Peggy Shepard, Cecilia Martinez from SEED, um, Nikki Sheets, um, uh, a whole host of people, Dr. Beverly Wright, Dr. Mildred McLean, a number of folks have been just meeting and talking about internally what issues we saw and we believed were necessary and important um, for us to move collectively with what we, you know, call our traditional big green organizations. And through that work, you know, we've, we've been able to kind of do this very historic thing of coming together and developing this national platform that really has equity and justice at the center of it. Yeah, that's fabulous. And Guillermo, um, the organization that you work for, Center for American Progress, uh, was also one of the key partners in pulling together this platform. Can you talk a little bit about um, what was one of the goals of uh, working on a project like this? And yeah, pulling together such diverse partners on this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the Center for American Progress acted as a convener uh, for the Equitable and, and, and National Just Climate Platform in the process of creating this climate forum where these big green organizations and environmental justice organizations could communicate and discuss, you know, and find alignment around shared uh, climate priorities and how do we better incorporate and be better allies uh, to one another. Uh, I think that part of the of the forum process was critical in, in bringing these two um, parts of the environmental movement together to really hash out both historical uh, environmental pollution and the legacy uh, and the impacts to those communities. But specifically in the face of a climate crisis, how do we work together, work with one another to advance solutions that not only tackle the crisis and the scope of the problem, but also address the equity component that address uh, the way that we've been interacting with one another. So uh, CAP uh, was specifically really happy to kind of help convene that process and engage with these leaders. Yeah, it's a uh, hugely important work. So Guillermo, you also recently um, put out a paper that uh, talks a lot about the communities that came together in in pulling together this platform um, and how um, these commu communities are going to be um, most negatively impacted by climate change, um, especially as it ramps up and especially as we saw in this UN report, how we have such limited time on some of this. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the report that you authored on extreme weather uh, is posing a huge risk to affordable housing? Um, and can you share a little bit more about the findings of that report and what some of your main takeaways were from it. Yeah, absolutely. So the report specifically looks and has a focus on frontline communities. Um, and so that's a definition from the fourth national climate assessment. It's basically looking at communities who are going to experience the first and worst climate impacts. Uh, and in, in relation to the, uh, the equitable and national just climate platform, uh, there is a speci specific focus on low-income communities and communities of color who are often in um, areas or communities uh, that are highly susceptible to climate impacts in addition to environmental pollution. So the report looks at different climate impacts across the country, everywhere from the wildfires that recently uh, ravaged California to hurricanes that struck the southeast, specifically Hurricane Michael uh, and how it destroyed the Florida panhandle, but also looks at Hurricane Florence uh, in the Carolinas and what kind of flooding impacts we have. So the report specifically just looks into the uh, affordable housing crisis here in the United States and how extreme weather is exacerbating that problem. So specifically, we're looking at uh, the most direct impact is that we're just losing uh, housing stock every a single year. 
we it's and when we rebuild we're not necessarily rebuilding with resilience in mind so that these buildings can sustain um, and deal with climate impacts in the future. So every year we're trying to rebuild, get us back uh, to the status quo, and we're realizing we're losing more and more housing stock. And there's already a, a, a shortage of about 7 million homes um, in that space, so we can't afford to be uh, losing this housing stock on, on an annual basis. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about why it is that um, it's it's climate change that is that is really like one of the main issues here in losing um, this housing stock? Can you talk a little bit some of the specific examples? I know you, I know you mentioned the wildfires in California. Um, how, how what are some of the ways that you're specifically seeing this in different types of communities around the country? Yeah. So looking, I mean, one good example from California and those wildfires is Paradise, California. We all know the coverage of what happened, but you know, 90% of the population is no longer able to return to that community because of the, the sheer destruction to their infrastructure, to their water infrastructure. Uh, and so we're, it, it sparked a really important discussion around what's going to be, what needs to be done in order to prepare these communities. Uh, and in particular, uh, you know, I think when it comes to paradise, you, when you have 50,000 people being displaced, you really have to start uh, looking at how to proactively invest in infrastructure to make sure these folks, uh, A, have places to go, but it's also that the community surrounding them have the housing availability to, to help support them. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be right back uh, after a quick break. We're talking to um, Guillermo from the Center for American Progress. Um, that's uh, Guillermo Ortiz and Corrine Taylor from We Act for Environmental Justice. And this is the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. Welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Brent Cohen. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. And we are speaking uh, in studio with Guillermo Ortiz of the Center for American Progress Energy and Environment Studio, uh, Energy and Environment Team. And on the phone, we have Kareen Taylor, the Director of Federal Legislative Affairs at We Act for Environmental Justice. Um, and so coming back here after the break, um, Kareen, I'm struck by the work that you're doing in northern Manhattan. Um, my uh, So during Superstorm Sandy uh, a few years ago, what was that, back in uh, 2013, I was uh, I was actually in the South Bronx. Uh, we lived in the South Bronx at the time, uh, much of my family in Washington Heights. And uh, I remember, so one, just the impact that the storm had on us. Uh, we made the highly intelligent decision to go outside during Superstorm Sandy. Nobody should ever do that again, uh, but to see it sort of firsthand. Uh, but then... In the in the sort of uh, recovery effort phase of this, uh, you know, we we had to take a ferry out to Far Rockaways uh, because there was no land transportation uh, to the Far Rockaways, which is out in Queens, um, and went out there as part of a volunteer recovery effort, uh, working to make sure that folks had uh, food and water. And part of the reason is because, and and Guillermo, your report points to this a little bit. Um, 
when when talking about the impact that extreme weather has on the disability community in particular and saw that firsthand at NYCHA properties. That's the New York City Housing Authority uh, public housing properties in Far Rockaway where they lost power, they lost water uh, oftentimes, uh, there were no elevators working, and so uh, lack of food uh, accessibility, lack of water accessibility. Uh, and we set up you know, uh, tables and, and had food available, and it was a large-scale operation, uh, and people were coming down from NYCHA housing to go pick up food, except for members of the disability community who were unable to uh, leave their homes and go do that because the elevators were out. And so here we were literally walking up jugs of water through stairwells that were pitch black because some of our NYCHA housing, uh, I shouldn't say our, some of the NYCHA housing had no windows in stairwells or hallways. And you had trash overflowing because the trash compactors didn't work because the electricity was out. And so you had overflowing trash in hallways, in stairwells, in pitch black uh, with people who couldn't access basic necessities like food and water. Uh, and it was it was a sort of staggering scene. Uh, knowing as as significant as Super Sandy Superstorm Sandy was, knowing that this was transpiring in New York City, um, really just sort of begs the question: If it's happening there, it's happening everywhere. Um, and and Kareen, how do you think we can better center vulnerable communities um, in 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 discussions around climate change? I think it's necessary um, to go directly to those communities and engage them around what you know they believe is best. Right after Superstorm Sandy, 400 residents of Harlem and other um, folks in the North Manhattan area, um, we convened a, a community meeting and um, we've had a number of meetings to figure out how do we respond after Superstorm Sandy. And it was, you know, a whole, you know, meetings in churches, meetings in community rooms, et cetera, because all of those issues that you mentioned are only going to continue to happen and they're only going to, you know, we're going to see them happen more frequently and just unfortunately worse uh, for our communities. And one of the um, things that came out of that was our North Manhattan Climate Action Plan, which is like a very extensive plan that talks about how to respond to um, to these uh, to these the hurricanes, to these superstorms, et cetera, but what types of things need to be put in place now, whether it's cooling stations, um, you know, whether it's um, drainage and all those other kinds of things. And another thing that we even developed is our own program to address the, the problem that you talked about, which was the blackouts and people not having access to power. And so we, comp- we created our own program called Solar Uptown Now, which is training and um, providing um, economic and employment opportunities for people right there in New York to learn about the solar industry and then also install solar panels on affordable housing um, buildings there in the Harlem area. And we're, we're working with NYCHA and ComEd um, to do that as well. And we've already um, been able to assist 900 residents in 11 buildings, um, and we hope to save them about $62,000 over the first year of the installment and about $1.7 million in savings over the um, 25-year lifespan of the solar um, panel. So I think the answer is already there. Communities already know the problems and they already have an understanding of the solutions. And we act in a number of environmental justice organizations, you know, thankfully are, are there, but we need to make sure that those types of resources are given to organizations like ours and others to do this work to meaningfully engage with our communities, to let them speak for themselves and develop plans and to not only respond, but um, to create resiliency and sustainability for our own communities. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, I, I, hearing you talk about the solar work is s- so important um, and really interesting. It, it brings to mind a couple of um, different 
uh, sort of, but related topics for me, one of which was uh, sort of workforce development, employment, economic mobility programs that actually revolved around the solar industry as a growing source of, of um, employment opportunities for living wage and upward mobility uh, employment opportunities and making sure that uh, communities of color are not shut out of that. Um, and so looking at this both as, uh, you know, potentially economic mobility as well as um, climate change recovery and, and, and sort of preventive measures there on, on that end, especially given the blackouts and things that we just talked about. And so, so one, that intersection, and then two, thinking about uh, Guillermo going back to your report for mm -hmm. a second and, and, and housing affordability, knowing the anecdotes and reports out there that as folks sort of move away from the high-priced uh, um, beachfront properties sometimes because they've now had to rebuild once or twice or three times, taking properties uh, through gentrification uh, that were previously less desirable but are now more desirable and, and sort of the process and how gentrification is in fact related to climate change uh, and related to um, the housing crisis as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in particular, you can see that happening in, in the city of Miami uh, looking at the coastal properties out there and you know a lot of the um, low income and, and communities of color were based at higher elevations in the city. And so what you're seeing now when uh, with all these climate impacts about projections about sea level rise, et cetera, you're seeing uh, a, a retreat from the coast in order to get to some of these higher elevation areas displacing uh, these communities. And so the term for that is climate gentrification. And we're starting to see that more and more across the country where um, just ge geographically where an area is, if it's resilient to climate impacts, it's suddenly desirable and it may displace um, communities who've existed and been there for generations. Well, thank you so much for that, Guillermo. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Uh, you're listening to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. And as we come back, we're talking about climate change in the recent UN report that talks about uh, the scarcity of land and the, the, that being such a finite re resource, the impact that it has, the uh, impact that climate change has on already marginalized or, or vulnerable communities. And we're talking uh, in studio with Guillermo Ortiz and by phone with Corrine Taylor. So thanks, thank you both for, uh, for coming back with us here. Um, and so, uh, Guillermo, I want to uh, turn back to you. Um, which groups, which communities do you foresee um, will be most affected by the findings of the of the UN report? I think uh, in indicative of, of who is writing the report. So uh, this is one of the few reports, actually 53% of the report was written uh, from experts from developing nations. And, and really, that's one of the key uh, groups that we're looking at and who's going to suffer for the most from the impacts of climate change, whether through land use changes, uh, deforestation, uh, desertification. I mean, these are all problems that uh, are disproportionately going to impact developing countries. So to see them really taking the pen and, and taking a leadership role in order to uh, kind of elevate these issues to the larger global community is important. And I think, um, you know, especially in... Uh, looking at low-income communities, communities of color, these are where we're going to see the greatest impacts. It's uh, research, study after study, is indicating that these communities are on the front lines, and so it's good to see the report reflect that developing nations are really taking the charge on this. 
Can I ask a little bit of a follow-up question on that? So it, it looks like, I mean, from the top lines of the report, what I thought was just wild was that um, you, you, you should, I guess we should know this already, but it was wild to see it sort of written out on paper. Humans are already using 70% of the land out mm-hmm. there, uh, and the, the population <laughs> continues to grow. We're already using in some way, shape, or form, be it like to grow food, to live on, uh, to to farm, to get timber from, to produce textiles for clothing. Um, we only have 30% of, <laughs> of the Earth's land left. Uh, so what does that mean? Um, how, how is that supposed to play out? Yeah, what it means is it means that we're going to have to focus on <clears throat> more uh, collaboration, really. We're talking about mixed use of our land resources. We're talking about being able to work together to decide land management practices that balance the needs of, uh, you know, whether it's food, uh, food security or whether it, we need that, um, you know, to produce clothing. We're, we're going to have to really think about how we're using our land and how to balance those priorities. And so when you're looking at, you know, the fact that we've already using 70% of our land, well, not only do we have to rethink that 70%, but we're also going to have to figure out for the remaining 30, you know, how are we going to use that in the most productive and efficient way in order to secure a livelihood, um, you know, that we all want for everyone across the, the globe. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. And 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 Kareen, what do you think climate experts are at risk of missing uh, when they discuss the implications of of either this report or reports like this? What do you think gets left out of the conversation here? I think what gets left out of the conversation is that um, communities of color are already stressed to a certain degree in terms in terms of our um, lack of uh, food options. Um, the New York community um, health profiles for our um, area that we serve in um, for WEAC shows that there aren't even enough grocery stores for the communities. Like um, in Washington Heights, the bodega to grocery store ratio is 13 to 1. So there's only one grocery store that services these communities. Same thing for Central Harlem and East Harlem. So yes, uh, climate change change will um, limit our access to food, limit our access to land, but what we've seen and what we know as environmental justice communities is that our communities already are stressed when it comes to access to clean, um, not only to clean water, clean air, but food, fresh food, healthy food, so that we can avoid, you know, a number of health um, conditions that are related to poor diet. So I think, you know, not only should we care about what's coming through with this report from the IPCC, but we should also um, think about, again, how do we provide solutions directly to communities? And one thing we do with We Act every month for our monthly member meeting, we partner with um, Corbin Hill Food Projects, and they provide uh, fresh fruits and vegetables, and we allow um, our members and anyone else in the community to come use that site to pick up, you know, and access um, fresh vegetables. So those types of programs, you know, community gardens and um, um, helping people understand horticulture and, and becoming more connected to the land, I think is, is just a very critical step to not only um, address um, the lack of, of food um, and healthy food, but empower people to take ownership of what it is that they are eating. So I think that's something that's definitely, you know, we need to take a very, you know, very good look at. You know, and and to follow that up, I think the other thing that we rightfully should point out is that everyone's, you know, identifying problems and what we need are solutions, right? And what's often left out is that people are already doing the work. I mean, look at the fantastic work that was just described. We need to elevate these examples across you know, if we're looking at here in the United States, across the nation, we have 
frontline communities, low-income communities, communities of color, who are adapting it right now. Not for future impacts, they are dealing with these impacts and historical ones right now. And we need to elevate these examples and put them onto our national agenda so that we can adapt in a way that's more equitable, but also what works, right? These people are living these experiences, and I think that we need to honor that and understand it and elevate it. Right. There's almost like this assumption that we're that we're somehow starting from scratch or we need to figure out what the solutions are when, in fact, Guillermo, as you point out, and, and Karine, as you speak to in, in, in that specific example, communities are doing this work. Communities are addressing oh, yeah. issues, um, and it's a matter of lifting and investing in those who are doing this work. It's not a matter of saying, hey, let's we've got a problem. Let's figure out what to do. And I think that was a big part of the Equitable Just National Climate Platform. Um, shining a light on the fact that communities have these answers and the the problem is just the flow of resources to our communities, to our organizations, to um, environmental justice organizations, social justice groups. And if we can somehow, you know, um, look to the federal government, look to our traditional green organizations to provide infrastructure to get us these resources, um, we can do this work, you know, collectively and for ourselves. And I think that is the exciting part about the platform. It just presents more opportunities for our communities to collectively voice solutions and then um, lift up the work that we're already doing. Karine, as a, as a follow-up there and on a, a more personal level, I, I totally agree. Um, and I find that so often the way uh, that resources get directed to these places is by um, having the sort of like a personal story, um, somebody who can sort of um, share their personal story. Is there somebody that you're working with right now um, or an example of something that you're working with right now where you can um, talk through uh, somebody who has, you, has sort of like looked looked at the situation they've been given and um, sort of through the work that you've been doing in the community uh, sort of turned turned that into power um, and uh, is there just is there someone's story that you'd like to share to sort of give us an example of um, of the types of uh, the work the type of work that folks in your community are doing yeah um, two of our partner organizations Green Door Initiative and Deep South Center for Environmental Justice they have their own worker training programs and the the funding for that um, came from the federal government but the budget for that has not increased at all over the time period that um, the program was created so these are really you know Green Door is located in Detroit um, Deep South Center is in, in New Orleans and um, those programs are doing incredible things, not only uh, teaching folks about like remediating um, Superfund sites and c- giving folks uh, in, in for in instruction on construction, the, um, job creation, and even staffing in environmental industries, but because they're already crunched financially um, because of lack of federal support, they aren't able to really have the biggest impact that they could, but they're still doing enough, you know, doing so much with very little. And I think, again, these two organizations are really great examples of how, you know, EJ groups traditionally have taken very small pots of resources, whether it's federal investments or state investments or even private um, dollars, and really have tripled or quadrupled its impact by empowering people who already are are looking for jobs. I know when we think about the unemployment rate of African Americans being 6.5% and 5.5% in comparison to whites, there's a real strong um, need to address that. And I think when we think about the 
to the growth of renewable energy and looking at solar and wind, we have to think about making sure that those industries are diversified and are inclusive of these communities who not only are going to be impacted by climate change, but already have systemic um, racial and economic issues that have not allowed us to be fully um, I think, fully involved in just creating the life that we need for ourselves. So these are really two great examples of communities that are doing the work. And again, it's just about getting them the resources to make their efforts even wider than it's already been. Yeah. And um, I think some of that is, as you as you said, um, it really is going to have to come from um, a, a, just a major change in the federal government and the major cha- a major change in the way the federal government decides to enact policy. So, um, Guillermo, I guess my next question here is for you on a on a policy level. Do you see anything um, sort of on the horizon? Uh, do you see an opportunity for Congress to be doing something on this subject, whether that's affordable housing access or um, land use more broadly? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that we're seeing in Congress nowadays is as a result of these uh, extreme weather events that are constantly, uh, you know, berating various sectors of the U.S. economy is that there's been a particular focus on disaster recovery uh, and and re-look and re-examining the federal apparatus when it comes to disaster recovery programs. And so, for example, uh, the House Financial Services Committee um, recently just passed the Reforming Disaster Recovery Act. Uh, and in particular, why that's noteworthy is because uh, it passed with unanimous consent. So there was bipartisan support uh, to reexamine the way that we use, uh, and it was about a specific uh, grant program, but how we use uh, disaster recovery funds to make sure communities are prepared for the impacts of extreme weather. And so uh, examples of legislation like that that are moving with bipartisan support because the, the, the truth is these impacts are impacting every region of the United States, it, whether it's uh, polar vortex in the Midwest, it, it's flooding in, in, in the Southeast, it's wildfires in California. I mean, you're seeing impacts all over the country. And so uh, there, there should be a bipartisan uh, effort to, make, to move legislation. And we're glad to see uh, committees in the House really honoring that and understanding that they have a responsibility to protect the communities that they represent. So uh, bills like that, that that kind of advance that disaster recovery goal uh, are things that we want to see when we're reexamining the way our, our government works and the way our economy works. Yeah. yeah, and it's sort of like we need we need both and right. We need preventative measures, but we also uh, we also need um, sort of corrective measures. Once this stuff is already happening, as we've as we've been saying, so um, those funding pots are so important. Um, is there is there something we should be doing to sort of like stop this sort of slide that we're uh, sort of going down and that looks that looks inevitable? It seems like we need drastic action now um, to prevent things from getting even worse. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and that's really what's driving the equitable and just national climate platform, right? Is that the there's this sudden under there's this understanding that much more bold new leadership on climate policy is needed. Uh, and and that's increasing the ambition at the federal level and also making sure that we're giving the right technical assistance and the right financial resources uh, to state and then local organizations or governments so that they can act in a way that best fits uh, their constituencies. And so I think what we're what we're looking at is, you know, in this conversation about climate policy, you know, there's a lot of different platforms, conversations coming about. But what we should be looking for is one that, you know, 
that when we have climate solutions, that equity is at the core. Because we need to make sure that everyone is receiving the benefits of this new economy that we plan to create, whether it's one that's based in clean energy that doesn't pollute, the one that doesn't, uh, you know, prematurely end lives around this country. I think we need to make sure that equity is at its core. And so when we're looking at solutions, start looking at environmental justice organizations and the people who are doing work on the ground because they have some of the answers. They have some of the answers and they're living these experiences. And that the combination of working with national environmental groups with environmental justice organization is a unique opportunity to advance solutions that not only tackle the climate crisis, but do so in a more equitable manner. So I really, you know, really push that forward for Congress to really accept that challenge and to work closer with the environmental justice organizations and leaders who have been producing this work for decades. I mean, and and the, the issue is they've been marginalized and ignored. And, and right now is a time to say, given the scope of this crisis, we need everyone on board, everyone being able to contribute. And due to uh, systemic racism and other and other issues, we haven't been able to tap into our full potential. But that's what we need to do. Yeah. And I, I mean, it seems almost baseline and foundational, but also we need members of Congress and, and senators to stop uh, denying that climate change is real. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's getthefactsout.com, which uh, really calls out the, the members of Congress. Uh, and members of this administration who are, are climate deniers, uh, really blocking action on this critical issue. Um, so, I, uh, Kareen, if folks want to get more involved with the work that you're doing in, in northern Manhattan, um, where can they go to find more information about that work? Well, for sure, um, go online to weact.org. Uh, We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Weact4EJ is our handle. Um, also, we encourage folks to consider becoming a member of WEACT. It's like $25, and not only do you benefit from the Corbin Hill Food Project that I had mentioned, but we have really robust uh, trainings around environmental justice and health. We also um, make sure that our uh, membership base of 800 folks there in the area can also in, um, be involved in local, state, and federal policy by engaging um, you know, in rallies, going up to Albany, et cetera, even coming to D.C. to do work. Um, um, and also just, you know, consider supporting us. You know, um, the work that we do is critical to not only um, empowering the Harlem community, but we also convene the Environmental Justice Leadership Forum, which is a coalition of 45 organizations in 22 states. And so the work that we do has impact. And, you know, being that we're a grassroots organization, resources are critical to the work that we do. Absolutely. And Guillermo, where can uh, folks find more information about the work that you do um, and the report that we've been talking about today? Yeah, absolutely. You can definitely check uh, the Center for American Progress's website. And then if you're uh, in particular looking at the energy environment team, I would just click on those links and it'll pull you onto the vast array of products that our team is working on. But I also want to flag uh, a, a justclimate.org is where you can find the equitable and just national climate platform as well as seeing you know the principles of the platform as well as the organizations that have already signed on. We have already have a total of 170 organizations that have signed on to the platform. And if your organization is interested, definitely check in, fill out the form, and we can process that. So want to encourage people, if they're looking for a way to get involved, that, that's one uh, manner that they can do so. Great. Well, thank you so much. So uh, we have been talking to Guillermo Ortiz, a research assistant at the Center for American Progress on the Energy and Environment team, um, and Kareen Taylor, Director of Federal Legislative Affairs at We Act for Environmental Justice. This has been the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show, and we will be right back with the news. 
Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Brent Cohen, and we are now joined by Bob Ney, reporter with Talk Media News. Thanks for joining us, Bob. Well, thank you. So uh, first topic I want to jump into, given the climate show that we just had, is wind power energy. And it looks like wind power is winning in the U.S. despite these repeated attacks by Donald Trump. Can you tell us what's happening with wind power energy? Yes, great topic. And by the way, uh, President Trump used his speech uh, uh, yesterday in Pennsylvania at a Shell petrochemical plant to revive and continue his attacks against wind energy. Now, what's strange about this, of course, is that his Department of Energy, that he has a cabinet member that runs, uh, has issued a report that goes completely contrary to everything he said yesterday. So the Trump administration Energy Department says that, you know, that uh, the wind power were robust last year. They were robust. Investment in new plants was $11 billion. Wind power prices are lower than ever, and wind provides 6.5% of U.S. power. You know, it's a beginning, you know, entity. But the president uh, sort of, I guess, doesn't care what uh, his department says because he's coming out saying, oh, no, they are destroying property values, killing all the birds, which is not true, and uh, there's power outages as a result of them, et cetera, et cetera. So it's obviously pandering to the big oil companies yeah yeah it's kind of remarkably unbelievable um and yet it's so par for the course uh so we have just under a minute left here just about a minute left i want to talk about uh statue of liberty i'm old enough to remember when that was a good thing uh now ken cuccinelli uh wants to rewrite the poem on the statue of liberty can you tell us what's happening there Yes, this one he wants to change to your tired and your poor who can stand on their own two feet and who will not become a public charge. What? You know, was his, was his joke on NPR, but it's not a joke. They're doing this already. They're denying students to come here because they're assessing that they can't pay back their loans in foreign countries. I mean, these are things that we haven't even seen in the media yet. So this is an effort to basically sit there in embassies and say, well, let's see, you're kind of not dressed well enough. You know, you might require a little help in the United States, so we're not going to send you over. I mean, literally, it would. Uh, this would allow embassies to just pick and selectively choose who comes. I'm I'm glad they didn't do that with my relatives who came from Ireland. Yeah, mine too. Uh, mm-hmm. So, Bob, thanks thanks so much for joining us. Want to uh, give a shout out to Mark Grimaldi, our producer, who puts on a, a wonderful show each and every week, and a big welcome to Emily Leach, our new senior press associate here at Generation Progress, for her first show. I'm Brent J. Cohen. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. And this has been the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show.